Hello, everyone. Welcome to Freedom International live stream. Once again, we will do our part to bring the best conversation that we could offer you for the day. And thank you so much for always uh, supporting us in, in every way possible, especially sharing every podcast to the people whom you know needs to hear this information because we still have a lot work to do and that's why we continue. There are many moments that sometimes we feel like we're going nowhere, but you know, deep in our hearts, we're making a difference in, in, in whoever we could touch who resonates to us, so thank you. And today I am honored and we are really grateful that um, Meryl Nass, Dr. Meryl Nass can be with us, okay? You know, she to her, her own battle, but she makes it a point that she can be with us. And I'll just read a little bit about what I know about her, but it's, she's so knowledgeable and she's been in this, let's say, battle for freedom and truth for a long, long time, maybe over two decades, over three decades. So welcome, Meryl. Thank you for inviting me, Grace. So what I know about her is that she is a board certified internal medicine physician. She have given um, six congressional testimonies and testified for legislatures in Maine, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Alaska, Colorado, Nubra and New Brunswick, Canada on bioterrorism and Gulf War syndrome and vaccine safety vaccine mandates. And that's why primarily I want her to be our guest because you know, for we know mostly that whatever they've been telling us is not really true. And we feel that there's more than to what the viral um, information, misinformation, disinformation. So then she also consulted for the World Bank, the Government Accountability Office, the Cuban Minister of Health and the US Director of National Intelligence regarding prevention, investigation and mitigation of chemical and biological warfare and pandemics. And she was the very first one in 1992 to publish, um, to really investigate and publish articles on the biological warfare um, about the world's lar largest anthrax outbreak. So this is really important that we can hear what she has to say about this and um, past incidents or past events and now tie it to the current events. Because if we tie everything together, we know that there is truly a nefarious agenda and we don't want to be a part of it and we want to change that direction so dr nas how what's in your early years of your practice or maybe in, before you became a doctor what kind of shaped you to this pathway that suddenly you are speaking to the you know in congress you are testifying and then even cuban ministry of health had to seek your, you know, your expertise or your knowledge. Go ahead and share to us, please. Um, well, I, I was an adventurous young woman. And uh, so before I finished college, I had hitchhiked around Europe, Africa, across Africa, 
and India. And um, so I got to know, living, you know, on the ground uh, with the people, got to know a lot about what was going on in the world and that our media weren't giving us a very accurate uh, story about what was going on in other countries. I then went to medical school, became a doctor, and um, was in the wrong place at the wrong time and heard that a, a professor at the University of Massachusetts, I lived in Amherst, which is where the University of Massachusetts is located, that a professor at the university was researching um, anthrax vaccines. And um, this professor used to work at Fort Detrick, which is the center for, originally the Center for Biological Warfare Research established during World War II. And then when biological warfare research was, and use and development and production was banned uh, by 1975 in an international treaty, um, this professor and several others had gone to UMass and um, continued to consult for the Pentagon. In any event, um, I was tasked with reading his contract and his CV and explaining to the group what it was he was doing. And it turned out he was, he was using a primitive form of genetic engineering, moving plasmids back and forth between different bacillus species to create new forms of anthrax and other bacteria. And it was easy to argue that this was something that was probably banned by the Biological Weapons Convention. And furthermore, it was being covered up because the title of his research grants and his proposals was studies to develop a better anthrax vaccine. And yet the contract had nothing to do with vaccines. So I started looking into what was going on. What was the Pentagon really trying to accomplish and what were the rules and um, discovered that there were very specific rules about what we weren't supposed to do and that we were breaking those rules. Uh, this, was, this was a project of the US Army. Um, and I wrote about that. And I also decided to look into all the anth recent anthrax epidemics over the last 15 years and just see whether any of them might've been due to biological warfare. And actually to my great surprise, one of them was. And I spent three years studying it in order to prove that it was in fact biological warfare and not a natural occurrence. And that was the first time anyone had been able to, or tried to, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of a fraught subject, uh, can get you in trouble. Um, so it was the first time anyone had published a paper looking at the scientific basis, looking at the qualities of an epidemic and showing that it couldn't possibly have been a natural outbreak, but that somebody had caused it. And this occurred during the Rhodesian Civil War, toward the end of the Rhodesian Civil War in uh, what was then Rhodesia and is now Zimbabwe, and caused at least 10,000 human cases and at least 200 deaths, human deaths, and many deaths of cattle, probably many thousands of deaths of cattle. So, Dr. Merrill, when you have seen this already in the 1990s, and all the other things are happening in Iraq and in other wars, global wars. What, did you continue to really like um, research more on, on why 
it seems like there's always an agenda behind the <laughs> agenda being told to the people. Yeah. Um, so yes. Yeah, so at that point, when I published that paper it was 1992, and um, I'd published the other paper in 1991. And you're right, we had gone into Iraq at that point um, with Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And I was one of the few, very, very few civilians who knew anything about anthrax and anthrax vaccine and biological warfare at that time. So I was, you know, I did a lot of interviews and I um, explained why vaccinating people against these biological warfare agents didn't make sense and, and why using them in most cases didn't make sense either. Although there are there are niche uses for biological weapons. So I don't want to, I don't mean to say that they're not going to be used. I think they have been used. I, I proved it, but I think um, they haven't always worked as well as the perpetrators have hoped, had hoped. And my suspicion is that the recent monkeypox outbreak and that the COVID outbreak are both biological warfare episodes um, that were much less severe than the perpetrators had anticipated. So anyway, I did that, and then um, there was the anthrax letters in 2001, so I got involved with that, and I, I knew the person who was claimed to, by the FBI to have sent the anthrax letters, Bruce Ivins, who worked at Fort Detrick, um, and I pointed out that the narratives that were being floated at the time by government agencies, including the FBI, were false. And basically several, the GAO, the Gen Government Accountability Office um, and the National Academy of Sciences both filed reports later around 2010 um, explaining why the the accusation that Bruce Ivins had done it and that the anthrax came from a particular flask in his um, lab had never been proven. Uh, and then, so sub, <laughs> I also consulted uh, for the director of national intelligence in I think 2008 regarding how one might detect um, a domestic terrorist, a domestic um, lab or university that might be researching or producing biological weapons. One, what steps one might take to identify that and stop it. Um, and I consulted for the, the World Bank um, in 2001 regarding how to mitigate if anthrax spores were used um, you know, in a facility of theirs, you know, what to do about it. And uh, so anyway, I've done all of that. And then when this pandemic arose, I took the government's word initially that um, it was very severe, you know, that it had come from a bat, uh, that people needed to stay home. Um, I didn't believe them on the masks because, you know, those of us who work in hospitals, know how to wear a 90, M95 mask and what it can do and what it can't do, et cetera. Um, and you have to be fit tested. It has to be very tight around your face. And the, even then you have 5% leakage. So these masks that people were encouraged to put on, I knew were gonna be of no value whatsoever, except perhaps 
impacting virus on the outside of the mask and then people touching it would get it on their fingers and it might even be worse. Um, but then by the end of March, 2020, I had come across uh, a paper in Nature Medicine written by, turned out later, five people that Fauci and Jeremy Farrar and Francis Collins had arranged to create a cover-up paper about why COVID couldn't possibly have come from a lab. And when I read that paper, it was so obvious that the arguments were specious. They did not make sense. They, um, no honorable scientist would publish something like that. And yet it had been published in a major journal by five scientists and nobody, there wasn't a peep out of anybody at that point in time. So I uh, wrote about it and I pointed out that some of the people who were authors had actually been involved with covering up biological warfare or questionable pandemics in the past. And that most likely they had been induced to write this paper or even just induced to put their names on it and someone else had written it and that it was a piece of propaganda. And so, so starting at that point, I investigated the propaganda regarding the pandemic. Um, I had already been writing about what people needed to do to protect themselves and to and potentially to treat the infection. And immediately after that, I started focusing on the suppression of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine drugs, which are which had been proven by government scientists at the NIH and CDC long before COVID appeared to be very effective against the first SARS virus and against the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus, both of which are beta coronaviruses that are cousins of um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So uh, anyway, I spent um, a good part of uh, April, May, June, identifying uh, about 30 different ways 30 different ways, different entities had striven to cover up the efficacy of the chloroquine drugs for COVID. And then I subsequently added about 30 more ways. So now there's a list of 58 different methods that have been used around the world to prevent people from accessing COVID early, or accessing chloroquine drugs early in a COVID infection, which, um, would probably prevent, in almost every case, all the very serious sequelae that occur late in COVID. Thank you for sharing that, Mariel. And um, I just have one more question and comment, and then I'll pass it on to Roy. Um, you've been doing this, and really, you know, with all the truth and uh, in sharing what's good for what you have promised yourself to be a physician, how are you handling all these difficulties? And then how did you survive before that? And no one was like uh, attempting to put you in a disciplinary action. And then suddenly now almost everyone like you who speaks up are either on the verge of losing their medical license and other certifications. And, and who is really the biggest purveyor of misinformation? 
Okay. Um, what I didn't mention before is, is I've done a lot of work on vaccine safety. So it started with the anthrax vaccine, which was mandated for soldiers in 1998, which it's hard to believe um, almost 25 years ago now. And um, I knew a bit about the anthrax vaccine and I knew that it had never been proven to be safe or effective. So I pointed that out before they started vaccinating two and a half million people. And the vaccine turned out to be very dangerous and there were huge battles um, within the military and within Congress regarding these mandates. And uh, a group I worked with eventually got a judge to withhold the, to revoke the license on the vaccine. And then about a year and a half later, FDA gave them the license back with no additional studies, no additional data showing safety or efficacy. Um, so uh, how, so at that point in um, 1999, I was doing some traveling around the country, giving talks to at outside of military bases to military personnel, primarily pilots. Pilots were setting up the talks um, regarding the potential dangers of the anthrax vaccine. And someone set fire to my home and office at that point. So I, um, got used to the fact that speaking up might not be the safest thing to do. But um, fortunately, I, I don't have the fear gene in me. So I kept going. And uh, what happened in January of this year is that the um, Board of Licensure and Medicine immediately suspended my license before I'd even had a hearing um, on the basis uh, that I had been spreading misinformation, that I had treated people with for COVID with off-label label medications, um, and uh, and that I had lied to a pharmacist about the diagnosis, saying it was Lyme disease rather than COVID, because if you told the pharmacist what the diagnosis was, they were instructed by government agencies not to dispense the medication. And um, so since the physician's ethical primary responsibility, even according to the Board of Medicine and the AMA and all the other ethical codes is primarily to take care of the patient, it's not to government agencies. Um, I did absolutely the right thing, I think, um, to lie to a pharmacist. And I immediately wrote to the Board of Medicine that I had been forced by their policy of you know, telling pharmacists they should not dispense a drug that they were legally uh, allowed to dispense for COVID. Um, I said their policy was harming patients. I was forced to lie to get around this and they needed to change their policy. And so they considered that another charge against me that I had self-incriminated myself with that charge of lying to a pharmacist. So on that basis, they decided I was an immediate threat to the public, which is interesting because you can rape a patient or, or let a lot of patients die or murder a patient and you would get um, more due process than I got before my license was uh, suspended. And now we're in the middle of a hearing process, which for some reason the board decided needs to take uh, five or six months. And so I've had two hearing days and I will have more starting again on January 31st. 
And then the board, the same people who voted unanimously to suspend my license uh, when I had broken no rules um, will be the ones voting whether to give me back my license. That's so sad. Um, Roy? Thanks, Chris. Hi, Meryl. Yeah, so we're, we're all familiar with uh, censorship and everything, but myself and Grace have been kicked off YouTube along with other things. So we're kind of not at your level, but uh, you know, we can understand it. You mentioned about the military, and I heard on one of your shows that uh, through some Gulf ruling that they don't have to be vaccinated because a lot of the time people think they had to, and unfortunately, we see all the side effects. Yeah. So what has been going on, at least since the start of the pandemic, is that the government has completely ignored the rule of law. It's ignoring the entire legal system, our, our system of jurisprudence, our laws, our constitution. Um, so the military are protected. So everybody should have been protected against mandates of experimental vaccines. And as you know, some of the uh, COVID vaccines have been given a license and some of them haven't. So for children under the age of 12, for instance, the vaccines are still considered experimental. They have not been licensed. They have not been formally approved by the FDA. Um, however, even though FDA has granted a license for certain age groups and certain vaccines, those vaccines, those actual bottles of licensed products do not exist within the United States. So people are still being given experimental product the bottles, if you look at the vial, it is still under emergency use authorization. And the reason for that is because, presumably, is that there is a very strong uh, liability waiver for the manufacturers as well as the government if the product is EUA. So it's, all, it's basically impossible to sue anybody if you're harmed. Um, and it's almost impossible to get any money out of the government if you're harmed. You, you can apply, you have a very short one year statute of limitations and um, no, uh, nobody has gotten any money yet for a vaccine injury for COVID in the United States. Um, there have been a few, a handful or less of decisions that people who had anaphylactic shock immediately after getting a vaccine, that they are eligible. And now the government has to decide whether they're going to get any money, you know, whether whether they've decided that that injury, if you you're still in the clinic, you may have the needle in your arm and you have anaphylactic shock. And some people have died of that. Some people have been very injured. So those cases are being acknowledged as caused by vaccine, but nothing else, according to the the setup, the legal setup called the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, under which all EUA products must be adjudicated. So anyway, let me get back to your question. Um, after the Gulf War, so many soldiers were chronically ill and the military said, we don't know why, we we've lost the records, we, we can't identify any specific exposures. And there were a lot of noxious exposures that soldiers faced in that war, uh, more than a dozen. Um, so Congress uh, and the president passed a law, um, Title 10, 1107, which said, okay, if you're, and, and soldiers during the Gulf War were forced to take experimental drugs and vaccines, including anthrax vaccine and others. 
Um, so the this 1107 law says, if you really need, if it's such a dangerous situation that you're forced to give soldiers experimental drugs and vaccines, the president needs to order it, right? It can't just be some flunky in the military, but the president has to take responsibility to do that. And so that's a law. So that gave soldiers uh, a higher level of protection against being forced to be experimental subjects than anyone else had in the United States. Now, there are other laws that say you can't force anyone to be an experimental subject. And um, if you're giving someone an EUA vaccine or drug, it's it's an experimental product. It is investigated. See, in the United States, you, a product has to be licensed, which is approved by the FDA, and then they can mandate it on people, or experimental. There's no middle ground. Now, the government would love there to be a middle ground. They've been trying to create a middle ground for decades, you know, in the middle ground being they can do whatever they want with experimental products. And um, so they created this EUA creature uh, in 2005. But based on other law and as reiterated by the former head of the FDA, Stephen Hahn, EUA products are all still experimental. So technically, if you use those laws, you can't force anybody to take an EUA product. But the federal government decided otherwise, and they decided they were going to force, they were going to force contractors, they're going to force government employees, they're going to force people in the military, um, and they instructed businesses, you know, that um, under the Medicare Medicaid rules, any medical facilities in the country that were taking Medicare had to require their employees to be vaccinated with these experimental products. And the government got away with it. And people have, there have been lawsuits and Children's Health Defense brought a lawsuit about this. We, we brought one in late um, 2021 after the first licenses for COVID vaccines were issued that and that was on August 23rd of 2021 and the FDA gave Pfizer a license for its vaccine but didn't make any available and said well the the EUA vaccine and the licensed vaccine are basically the same but um, technically different or legally different um, and, but we have a big supply of the EUA vaccine. We don't have that much of the licensed vaccine. So we're gonna use this, the supply that we have of the EUA. And that's what they said when they issued the license on August 23rd last year. So we brought a lawsuit and said, uh, you know, you can't, you can't do this. This is a bait and switch. You're telling people, and, and the government did this. The FDA issued that license to enable the Biden administration to impose mandates, to basically fool the whole country into thinking they were getting a licensed product when they were in fact getting an EUA experimental product. So that's what's happened. And, and Children's Health Defense brought a lawsuit. We thought it would be a slam dunk lawsuit. We'd win it quickly. Um, and instead it was thrown out on you know standing technical reasons and we've appealed and it hasn't gone anywhere because the judges, most of the judges in the United States have not wanted to rule against the government's pandemic response program. They, you know, probably the judges are scared of, of 
COVID also, and they don't want to challenge what the government's doing. So well, they're on they're on their payroll, so you don't exactly uh, you know yes. put, yeah it's your boss as such. So that's the fair and that's international with the corrupt uh, court system. And with, with, say, the mandates, I don't know, have you or your fer- fellow truth warriors kind of, like, because a mandate, according to Black Law's dictionary, is you actually need to sign it yourself. You need to say that I agree to this, which nobody has done. Has anybody kind of gone down that route with your Not that I know of. Okay, okay. Because I think just based on my own, what I'm doing and kind of working on kind of sovereignty, there's so many different things, UCC and uh, common law. But I think that that's how we're going to beat them because, unfortunately, I don't think going into the court is the way to do it. You actually have to take it before it goes to court and then t- take them out. That's the way. Yes. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we haven't found the, the magic sauce yet, but I think we should keep trying everything we can think of. One more thing about this military um, mandate is that the... Department of Justice was tasked with looking into this before the federal government issued its military mandate to see whether it had the right to mandate the vaccine on soldiers. And a top DOJ official named Dawn Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-E-N, offered uh, a detailed opinion and said basically, we think you can mandate it for other Americans, but not for the military, given this bill 1107 in Title 10. Um, And despite that opinion being issued, they did it anyway. And they've thrown out a lot of of military. And now there's a, uh, I I read yesterday that 13 senators have written to to Mitch McConnell um, in the Senate asking him to, uh, you know, do something. They want a bill to stop the military from throwing out soldiers who have refused the vaccine and reinstating those who have been thrown out. Okay, excellent. And you mentioned propaganda earlier. I saw as well that the federal government, they had paid, you know, hundreds of media kind of promoting this COVID propaganda. Yeah, and... I don't know how much they paid, but the amounts are probably unbelievably enormous. Um, in France, I think it said they spent the government spent three billion euros paying off the media. And that that's a country of about sixty billion. We're three hundred and thirty-five billion. Um, in Canada, they spent I think over a billion dollars. So we probably most likely spent tens of billions of dollars to bribe media. And then the, the vaccine manufacturers like Pfizer, who were who made a profit of about $60 million over two years on the, I say profit, but sales, I think sales were about $60 billion over two years of, not, not quite two years, of COVID vaccine. They too have been uh, buying a tremendous amount of advertising in the media. And that not only buys advertising, but helps to control what news will be provided in the news programs. So that's, it's a soft form of censorship. You can't really go after them legally. Um, Although, so the First Amendment in the, of the Constitution um, gives us freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and freedom of religion. 
and the so that means that tells the government what it can and can't do it doesn't tell necessarily private enterprise so private enterprise has the ability to discriminate in way but the government doesn't the government is not allowed to censor is not allowed to suppress speech and um what was found in discovery recently is that at least a dozen federal agencies were working with social media companies and telling them what they wanted censored, what subjects they wanted censored and what people they wanted censored. So that again, as I said, the government's been complete as if, as if the law didn't exist, they've just ignored it. Um, but this, this is clearly illegal. And the case was brought by the attorney generals of Mississippi, of, sorry, Missouri and Louisiana. And it's a very interesting case. And it's, it's pretty clear that um, the federal government was breaking the law. It's a pretty important law, the First Amendment. You know, it's the foundation of our law on speech. So um, hopefully some of that will be turned around. But yeah, I mean, we have censorship to such a degree that you can't, it's almost impossible to find the information you're seeking on YouTube or Google or somewhere else, and certainly not in the major media. Um, and that, you know, is what has enabled the, the Great Reset to move forward. So, um, you know, it, it's critical. And, and no one would have dreamed it could happen because it's so illegal. But if the government's ignoring the law, you know, anything goes. And if the government is printing money, the US government claimed as of last October that it had allocated 4.5 trillion, trillion with a T, dollars to the pandemic response. Basically, you could bribe everybody with that much money. Well, they've got their printing press in the Federal Reserve, so they're able to do that. You know? And what, what I can't understand is how the dollar is so strong still, when in reality, with the way that they're printing it, it should be a fraction of what it is at the moment. So one of the other things is with the World Health Organization, because I know a lot of countries were working with them, if the next pandemic, that they were going to basically have like kind of international law over the countries and declare what they wanted to do. What's the current status with that? The current status is um, that the WHO is keeping things very quiet, that the um, pandemic treaty, which is now seems to have been renamed as the pandemic accord. And according to Professor Fran Boyle, it legally, it can go forward provisionally on simply the signature of Joe Biden or other you know, people, and it doesn't have to be approved by our Senate. Um, anyway, so the, the WHO has two different legal mechanisms by which it could gain much more control over public health measures around the world. One of those methods is called the International Health Regulations. These were established originally in 2005, um, and they tell the WHO what it's supposed to do and, and member countries in the event of a pandemic. And there are many um, proposed amendments, which are some of which are secret to, or all of it may be secret, to this pen, to this international health regulations. And there are a group of 14 countries that are negotiating the regulations. 
In addition to that, there's also something called the Pandemic Treaty, which is new, wasn't established previously, or Pandemic Accord. And that will give the WHO, um, it's, we don't know what it says because they're still negotiating it. But the uh, leaked information is that it will give the WHO the ability to manage pandemics in every country. The WHO Director General Tedros already has the power to declare a pandemic whenever he feels like it. So he declared that monkeypox was a pandemic, a public health emergency of international concern, which is the highest level of pandemic. After his own advisory committee voted twice not to declare it, that it wasn't a, a pandemic of international concern. And what that tells us is that he, I mean, and now there's almost no monkeypox anywhere. We're down to less than 5% the number of cases there were in August. Um, but he declared that of his own volition with no supporting data uh, and his own committee telling him not to. So he can declare a pandemic anytime he wishes. And if these, the treaty or the international health regulations gives him authority when he makes that declaration, he can then say, potentially, okay, everybody gets remdesivir for COVID. We're not allowing any hydroxychloroquine. We're not allowing ivermectin. We're not allowing vitamin D. I mean, this is the sort of thing that might happen. And we need to do everything we can to prevent it. So there's uh, two ways of preventing it. One is to are, try to get Congress or your legislatures, your parliaments to fight against these new rules that are coming in, even though we don't know what they are yet. And you might have to fight every year or two or over and over again about it, or your government can exit the WHO. And in the case of the US, we can tell them we're leaving and then in a year we're gone and we stop paying our dues. That seems like the simplest way to deal with this problem because then we won't have to be fighting repeatedly over the language in treaties that are hidden from us. Um, so I would advise everyone to seriously, if you have a chance to talk to your lawmakers, to talk to your friends, and encourage them that really the WHO has done nothing at all for the developed countries. And in the underdeveloped countries, it's been mainly um, a, a place for nepotism, you know, a place to give jobs to your relatives. There's been tremendous criticisms over decades about corruption at the WHO and lack of effectiveness. It's, it's in a, it's, it took three months for the WHO to respond to the West African Ebola crisis in 2014. Um, it's been criticized for its um, assistance or lack of assistance in the current Ebola outbreak in Uganda. Um, it probably gave us incorrect information about the Zika epidemic. So, you know, what is the, what good is the WHO? That's the question. Is it benefiting anyone? And should we just um, get out and let it wither away? It's basically at this point, a creature of Bill Gates. And um, yeah. 
And just finally, before I pass it to Hartmut, I see that digital passports seem to be kind of coming back on the agenda again. What's what's your update on that? The G20 meeting in um, Jakarta, I think, somewhere in Indonesia, um, uh, ended with an agreement of the entire G20 to push the vaccine passports, which can also they have many names, health passports, um, digital IDs, etc. This is the beginning of making us all carry our papers and probably being tracked through our telephones or other digital entities that we're going to be required to carry. Um, it's also a way of forcing us to be injected with things um, against our will uh, in order to travel or in order to possibly shop. If you remember at the, uh, with this current pandemic, people in some cities and some countries were not allowed into various kinds of stores without a vaccine passport. Um, it's very dangerous because we know the vaccine is not helpful and it's very, the COVID vaccines, all of them are uh, wear off very quickly. They help you for a few months, then they stop helping you and they make you more susceptible to COVID. Um, and that's not even looking at the side effects from the spike protein, from the lipid nanoparticle and from the contaminants that are in them. Um, probably the 20%, 15 to 20% increased mortality in many countries in Canada, Europe, UK, US, um, is due probably to the vaccine, to the lack of safety, to the harms caused by these COVID vaccines. And if our governments are so intent on forcing us to take the COVID vaccines, why would we think the RSV vaccine or the monkeypox vaccine or the next is going to be any better? Because they're not doing this for our health. They're doing it for another reason or reasons. And so just like, as I'm aware of, uh, a lot of people are actually pretending they got it to have the passport. And I think that's dangerous. One for statistics for those, you know, pro and against. But the other thing is when they find out that you didn't actually have it, then it's a criminal offense. So I think you're putting yourself in more danger by doing that. And I just to make people aware of that. But I thank you very much for what you're doing. And I pass it over to Hartman. Thank you so much for being here, Meryl, for, uh, yeah, for this very interesting show. And um, I have Derek in the question. Do you know the percentage of the American soldiers who are vaccinated right now? Um, we have information that the military releases. We don't know if it's accurate. Um, it looks, uh, they said that there was something like 70,000 who had refused the vaccines. And that, would, and that would be about 5%. I. Uh, or or less. I suspect it's it's a higher number than that. Okay, and um, oh, you you expect it's a higher number who refused to take the vaccine, took the vaccination. I think so, um, but I, you know, as I said, there's there's no real numbers. If um, okay. all I, I can tell you, when when we went through this with the anthrax vaccine, the military never gave us honest numbers. And, um, the, and, and the CDC has not given anyone honest numbers since the pandemic started. So in the U.S., I think all of our numbers are, are unreliable. All of our 
statistics on cases and deaths and, and vaccine uptake are unreliable. I think the numbers are better in the UK and Israel um, and Canada, but people in those countries have said their numbers aren't perfect either. And um, do you, and as you're also very um, familiar with the anthrax vaccination, for example, with the mRNA vaccinations, do you see it? Uh, do you see these kind of vaccination, which we which we are facing now, also as a biological warfare? Um, yeah, as a biological 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 war, um, warfare system, in order to kill people or to control people. Um, there's something insidious. There's something um, bad about the reason why many governments are trying to force these vaccines on people when they when the governments know very well that they don't work. So let me be very specific. For the first two weeks after a COVID shot, you are more susceptible to COVID and then you become less susceptible. And then for a period of time, which if you're five to 11 years old lasts a month or two, or if you're an adult, lasts about six months, you are you have some protection and the protection goes down very rapidly. So in a five to 11 year old by a month, you've only got 50% protection. Um, and then after you go to zero with protection, which is where you would think it would stop, you go to negative. This is very unusual for a light. It's, it's happened in some prior vaccines in humans and animals, but they were taken off the market. And what negative means is you become more susceptible. You have more cases of COVID in the vaccinated than in the unvaccinated. And I was just looking last night at some data from the UK and in almost every group, um, the vaccinated, by the time six months had gone by since the first two shots, um, just about every age group, in the, va the vaccinated were having more COVID and more all-cause mortality. So the vaccinated were having more deaths and more COVID. So whichever way you looked at it, if you looked at, are they having more COVID? Yes, after about six months, the vaccinated have more COVID. And if you look at, are they dying more? Yes, it seems like they're dying more also after some number of months. Um, Can I give you the mechanistic explanation for why that occurs? I, I can sort of give you an explanation for COVID, which is an old explanation and may not be accurate, um, which claims that certain antibodies are protective and certain antibodies actually enhance your ability to get the disease and both can be due to vaccination. And that the um, basically the bad antibodies predominate after a period of time. So that's a, you know, a, uh, an explanation for what it's worth. Um, why the mortality? What we think is that the mortality is primarily blood clots, which is heart attacks, strokes, sudden deaths, um, pulmonary emboli, things like that. We don't have great data, again, because countries are not providing the, the granular data to, to say for sure what's causing these deaths. We have hints from different countries. We had the FDA tell us in, in July of 
2021, that's almost a year and a half ago, told us that for the Pfizer vaccine, there were more heart attacks and more pulmonary emboli, more um, thrombocytopenic purpura. Um, that means low platelets with um, bleeding and more disseminated intravascular coagulation, which is a diagnosis in which you kind of you clot and bleed at the same time. You use up your clotting factors, so you bleed, and it happens in blood vessels throughout your body. So all four of those diagnoses had been increased in people who had the Pfizer vaccine. FDA claimed it wasn't seeing this in the other vaccines and that it was going to provide us updated information soon that they would study it further. And that was almost, as I said, it was July of 2021 they have provided us no additional information. So the CDC has about eight to 10 databases it can use to look at vaccine safety that are not available to the public. And the FDA has about eight or 10 databases also that it they purchase these databases. So taxpayer money pays industry to, to obtain medical databases of different kinds. So some are medical records from HMOs, and they have information on 11 or 12 million people from HMOs. Um, some of this information is pharmacy records, what um, drugs are being prescribed and sold. Some of it is um, insurance records. So what are the diagnoses that people are going to see doctors for as inpatients or outpatients? And all of this information is being collated and, and studied by these federal agencies. It's all hidden. We don't see any of it. So um, I think that's a huge problem. I, I, If we had a Congress that had a spine, you know, maybe they would go after these agencies because they are the um, regulators, that Congress is the oversight for these federal agencies. But um, they, have, they have left this alone. They don't care. I see. Well, I ask because... Um... In the in the normally let's say if the military is involved everything goes about control and um there is for example i found by accident um uh, a seminar from dr charles morgan uh, at the west point military academy about the psychology neurobiology and war and um, the interesting thing is that uh, it was mentioned there that, for example, one gram of DNA has seven terabyte, which is comparable to seven billion iPads. This was established two thousand. This was discovered two thousand two, I think. And um, they are also so far in this DNA structure that they can do in DNA steganography. This means. They have an inverse E. coli bacteria, which genetically can is so engineered that it can produce different fluorescence proteins, and so that you can that that they can read the proteins like letters. It's unbelievable, yes. and it's all about like um, the the consultant of Klaus Schwab said, Yuval Noah Harari, the the human being can be read, can be can be read by Google or by techniques. 
and I think this is all about the 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 the, the, the deaths are side effects. Well, the Johnson and Johnson, according to Peter Halligan, is four or five times deadlier than the Pfizer or Moderna. But um, at the end, we are talking here about um, about a genetic modified vaccination, which, if it if it, contain, if it contains equally bacteria, can produce complete new proteins in our body, so that they can read us very well. Do you have any comment on that? Um, I only like you, I've heard about this. I believe that you can store data on DNA, um, which doesn't weigh very much, you know, it's a molecule, but, um, what, what the plans are to do to us using this, uh, I have no idea. Okay. And, um, concerning, concerning the, um, do you have any solutions already found or is there any, do you have any alternative um, medicine found which can support the healing of of the vaccination if you took it already? There aren't any clinical trials of um, healing from the damage of the vaccine. The FLCCC had a meeting and I attended it in, in mid-October and um, you, I guess you can buy all the access to all the speakers. I was a speaker um, and people talked about what they were using that seemed to be beneficial. Um, but as I said, there's no clinical trials and different people are sick in different ways. You know, they have different symptoms, different severity. Um, it made sense that intermittent fasting, ivermectin, Uh, would be helpful. It may be that low-dose naltrexone is helpful. Um, the FLCCC has put out um, guidelines. Um, here is uh, a paper copy. Okay. And then the World Council for Health um, has also issued some guidelines that doctors and naturopaths and other alternative practitioners have put together, but none of this has been quantitatively evaluated. I see. Okay. And um, concerning uh, the excess mortality, for example, here in Germany, we had in October 2022, 19%. Um, in Japan, it's also 90%. And... Uh, The professor, what was his name? One moment. The professor Kyoto, uh, the professor Dr. Masanori uh, says that the COVID vaccine is a very dangerous one. So this, so the Japanese doctors also tell that we have here that we are um, in a situation where billions of life could in ultimate danger. Who took it? Yes, I think that was the most recent Japanese professor was Dr. Fukushima, I believe. Yes. Um, yes. I, so I think you said 19% increased all-cause mortality. Is yep. that correct? Yeah, yes. and 19% in the UK in August. Um, you know, this is a serious problem. It's not making it into the newspapers, 
but this is what should end the program. Uh, I don't know how to stop it. I mean, we've brought legal cases, legal cases are in process. That hasn't um, stopped it so far. We Children's Health Defense has another legal case I was involved with saying that the vaccines weren't uh, properly approved for children. You know, that, that also has been thrown out and we're uh, waiting on appeal now. Um, so people have to say no. People, people have to start educating themselves somehow. I mean, we are doing the best we can to provide them with the evidence. Um, in the United States, according to the New York Times a few days ago, only 11% have taken this last bivalent booster, which is the first booster to be different than or the earlier shots. It has, it's a mix of 50% an Omicron uh, booster and, you know, 50% the original spike. Um, so it's an Omicron spike and it's a Wuhan spike, the RNA for both of them. Uh, and 11% in the United States, it's probably less than that, the number that have taken it. Even though it's been basically authorized for children, I think down to age five in the US. Um, so I think people don't want this stuff, but they haven't, many of them figured out what's really going on, what the dangers are, what the benefits are. They just don't know. They're, they're barraged by false information. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you tell me what to do. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to create networks of people, you know, and find other ways to share information besides the media. I see. Yeah, it's like like we do. The um, one question I have also is concerning the monkeypox. Um, there is there are information in the internet that the monkeypox virus is nothing else than the last state of um, HIV. For example, if you are in the last phase of HIV, you have the same symptoms like monkeypox. And um I don't think that's true. Um, okay. I think monkey, the, the monkeypox that's been going around the world this year is a very mm -hmm. mild disease. There's been only two Americans who have died with monkeypox, and it looks like both of them had AIDS already or had an immune compromise. Um, so we've had, I don't know how many, over 30,000 cases, and we've had two deaths. It's a mild disease. It's basically similar to shingles. You mm -hmm. have, it, usually there's a very small number of lesions. They, they can be in the perirectal area or the area of the penis. So they can be painful when you're urinating or defecating and cause spasm of muscles. And people have gone into the hospital for pain relief. But basically it, it's, you're over it in one to four weeks. You don't need a vaccine for it. There's really... I'll tell you one thing though, the vaccine worsened HIV. So this is a problem because a lot of people who developed monkeypox had HIV. And in the clinical trials of the vac of the Genios vaccine, the Bavarian Nordic vaccine, which is the main one being used, but not the only one, um, HIV titers went up as a result of vaccination. Mm -hmm. And CD4 cells went down. So that's a really bad thing for an HIV patient. 
And so if you have HIV, you should not take this. I mean, nobody should take the vaccine because it hasn't been proved to work or be effective, but it's particularly bad for people with HIV. Um, so monkeypox is, you know, ginned up the way COVID was to be, to appear to be much more severe in the vast majority of people than it really is. But so, if you get COVID, you still should take early treatment because that seems to prevent the long COVID. I see. No, I, I got the information that the HIV virus was a transport thing in the vaccination. I don't know whether this is true or not, this information. Well, I mean, any of these vaccines may have who knows what kind of contaminants you know we have we can't nobody studied them for the presence of contaminants in in our country fda allows all the testing to be done by the manufacturer and under under eua and the uh the monkeypox vaccines are also under eua even though they were licensed um in order to get rid of liability you the less the manufacturer does to test them, the better off they are, right? Because if they find a problem, then they have to disclose it. But if they don't test and they don't find, they don't have to disclose anything and they're not liable. So the manufacturers are, are not doing testing. The FDA isn't testing. No, and we don't okay. know what's in these vials. Yeah, and uh, the, the, my last my last question, or whether you can have, have a comment on that, is uh, I saw... In Australia, uh, an article that uh, the Australian government starts to vaccine the cattle, so that the people that the cattle will get the mRNA vaccination. For what? For what disease? For COVID. <laughs> yeah, but many cattle already died immediately. Yeah, and um, the situation is that the governments. All around the globe, it looks like that they don't want to force the vaccination anymore. For example, here in Germany, we had the forced vaccination for people in retirement homes or in healthcare system, mm -hmm. and this will be this will uh, be ended until the end of the year. So there is no any forced vaccination in Germany anymore. And um, now is the question whether they will bring the vaccination by other things for example the food in our in in our in our system well you know who owns the cattle i mean the government can't vaccinate cattle unless the owner of the cattle uh wants it and i to yeah. my knowledge there are no, cattle don't get covid you remember what happened to the mink uh denmark and norway had to kill all these mink because it was claimed they had COVID and there was really no trans and cats had COVID, but there was no transmission, uh, okay. meaningful transmission from animals to humans. Um, I have not heard of cattle getting COVID. I think that there is, um, remember, was in the Telegraph paper a couple of days ago in the UK that um, 3000 farms, mostly cattle, um, agricultural farms, are being told they have to sell off. They're going to be closed down yes. because there's too much nitrogen uh, yes. pollution in the yes. waterways. And this, this is, is only the Netherlands. because, yes. right, Netherlands, but they're claiming they have to do this because of EU rules on pollution. Now, Netherlands yes. has the most in intense farming 
anywhere. But um, there will be other countries also that are, uh, if these rules are to be followed, that are going to have to shut down uh, agriculture, particularly livestock farming. And that may yeah. be part of what, you know, may be part of what you're hearing about. Yeah, that's that's true. In the Netherlands, they do it, uh, and they do it only in specific areas, so that um, they don't they don't do it on on, on the Netherlands uh, on all countries of the Netherlands. They do it only in part in parts of the countries, so that uh, they do it silently under the radar. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's really amazing. Thank you so much, Meryl. I pass you to Jane. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Hi, Meryl. I wanted to go back to, you know, what we were talking about originally. And did you did you see evidence that this was biological warfare, that COVID-19 was lab based? Um, well, I think there's a lot of evidence that uh, the Wuhan strain of COVID-19 came from a lab. Uh, I don't I don't even think it's worth me going over because there are many different aspects of the genome that are different than prior beta coronaviruses that we know about. Yeah. So it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I think it's obvious thought, to anyone who looks. Yeah. And why do you think it came out of Wuhan, out of China? Uh, well, let me ask you a question. If you were developing an organism for a biological weapon and you wanted to cause a worldwide pandemic, um, and you didn't want yourself to be identified as the perpetrator, where would you release it? Yeah. You would release it near a lab that was doing research on beta coronaviruses. Yeah. So, well, yes. And the implication with China, so that it looks like it's possibly from Chinese labs instead of American. Or European or yeah. Australian. I mean, they, these are easy viruses to play with. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And there's still people that think it was natural. And, you know, so I'm, I'm just pulling it out once more. Because <laughs> it's, it's obvious to anyone that looks. And uh, what did you mean by long COVID? You know, if if so someone there, is there are, so remember, it's a it's a lab designed a, a virus. It seems to cause a unique clinical syndrome with potential significant severity. So it can cause um, a lot of autoimmune effects. Uh, as well as the blood clotting, which is a direct, we think a direct result of the spike. Um, but there are many, I was just looking at yet another paper that came out in April, glancing at it, that showed, there've been a number of papers that show homology, so that what that means is short segments of um, human tissue proteins, like maybe six or eight amino acids, but enough that you could make antibodies to that segment, that the spike protein is homologous, has some of those same segments. Uh, in a paper by uh, Yehuda, what was his name? Yehuda Schoenfeld, they found 
30 different human epitope. An epitope is this short segment of amino acids um, that can trigger antibody production. Um, they found 30 different segments in the spike protein that were analogous or homologous to human proteins, segments in human proteins that could then trigger an autoimmune attack on those human tissues. Um, other researchers have found other numbers and other different, but there's significant homology nonetheless, which is strange. Um, so anyway, things that can happen, you can wind up with organ failure late. You can wind up producing spike for some unknown period of time. Uh, at least one study showed someone producing it up to six months after a shot. No, that's a shot. It's not, you know, some, in some cases it's shot, in some cases it's spike from the disease. But um, if you, what happens when you get COVID, uh, so I do believe in viruses. I do think that COVID is caused by a virus. You don't, we don't have to call them viruses. We can call them anything you want, but it's a, I believe it to be a contagious disease. It spreads from person to person in families or friends, you know, you have close contact. I had close contact with someone who came down with COVID, then I got it. My son, who's a doctor, was in close contact with somebody who then got COVID and then he got it. Um, so I believe it's an infectious um, biological organism. And the first week you have it, you're growing the virus. But then after that, the virus dies off. Your immune system kills it the virus is gone unless you have a very damaged immune system. What you're left with is your body's response. You have, so you can have cytokine storm, you can be producing these molecules in your body that are very stimulating of inflammation in different places. Um, and you can develop very classic autoimmune type symptoms. Your lungs can fill up with, with gunk, you know, with inflammatory fluids and stop you from breathing and you can scar your lungs severely um, after COVID. So if you can kill off the virus early on and you don't let this whole thing transpire where the virus is gone, but then your body is continues to respond to it for maybe weeks afterwards or months afterwards, um, it, I think it's important to do so, which is why I recommended um, treating it early and everybody having a good vitamin D level, you know, probably 50 to 100, you know, before you even get COVID. But if you haven't been doing that, take large doses of vitamin D to get your level up quickly. That will help you take some zinc, take, you know, there's many, many products that can be helpful. Um, in my case, I've used hydro. I've had it COVID twice. I used hydroxychloroquine once and I used ivermectin once. And um, I had no long-term symptoms because I started them early and I was taking vitamin D and zinc, et cetera. Um, but plenty of people do have long-term symptoms after the illness and plenty, lots, probably, we don't know, but uh, I took a straw poll once at the uh, FLCCC conference, and we were guessing maybe about 25% of people who got vaccinated have continuing symptoms afterwards that they're aware of. So um, you don't want to be vaccinated, and you want early treatment, and you want to 
boost your immune system so that when you deal with COVID, you'll, you'll be ready for it. Um, so I, what I started to say, and I, I trailed off into something else, was that I think it's very possible that because this was engineered in a lab, the people engineering it had an idea that these that the cytokine storm could happen later, that the autoimmune symptoms could happen, and that the spike could trigger um, clotting. I think, I mean, maybe they didn't, but um, they designed it. They should have tested it in animals. They should have had some, you know, animals are not the same as humans. We have different side effects from the same drug or vaccine. But still, I think it's very possible that the designers of this had some sense of the chronic sequelae that are very unusual. If you get a coronavirus that gives you a cold, none of that stuff happens afterwards. You know, this, this is an unusual disease, an unusual organism causing very unusual chronic symptoms. And um, so, yeah, I think it is a biological weapon. I think it was designed as a biological weapon. Some people say it was designed, uh, you know, as a biological agent so we could make vaccines against it. I don't know. I think that's an easy out, but uh, I'll leave it to, to those who dig into this deeper than I have. Yeah. And what makes it um, really confusing is that some of the symptoms of long COVID are the same as the vaccine. So, you know, where do you, how do you point the finger, right? Which is quite right. brilliant, really. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Very confusing and intertwined. And the FLCCC suggests the same treatments they, they feel they're basically they're very very similar overlapping syndromes yeah and what i find interesting too and because of my studies i know that natural immunity is the best immunity in any disease and that early treatment and then allowing your immune system to thrive and do its job is the best way to tackle anything but um, natural immunity has been completely ignored by the government forcing vaccine on even those that have had COVID. And I, I just wondered if you could comment on that. That was one of the earliest obvious crimes of the government was to claim that natural immunity was gonna wear off quickly, but vaccine induced immunity was gonna last longer. You know, it's, that's never happened before. And the fact that all these doctors bought it it's like, what is wrong with, you know, that really made me wonder what kind of hypnosis or, you know, brainwashing is taking place that people can forget everything they knew about how the body works um, and believe this tripe about how an experimental vaccine is going to work better than your own immunity after you've had COVID. No, but in fact, the side effects are, are worse if you've already had COVID and you get the vaccine, so you're susceptible to more side effects and you don't get any better immunity. So, and the immunity isn't that great, even if you've had COVID because the, these viruses mutate so rapidly. And I think Fauci is now starting to admit that, but um, yeah, it, it's quite, it, I don't know what to make of it, how, all my, so many of my fellow physicians have drunk the Kool-Aid on um, COVID when there's no logical reason for them to have done so. I, I'd love someone to explain how that happened. Yeah. 
<laughs> I know I have gasped in amazement <laughs> myself. And yeah, the brainwashing is quite incredible. Um, and I also thought as you were talking, why on earth would we be experimenting with the men and women that have, you know, given their lives to protect our country for decades? Well, people used to say that to me during the anthrax vaccine debacle 25 mm. years ago. And they said, yeah. you, think people, you think they're trying to weaken America's military? And I have to say now that I think the people who are running this show are do not have any national allegiance. Mm. I think they're globalists and they do not want any nation to have a strong military. And I think they'd like to roll all the militaries into NATO or into the UN and, um, and get rid of them. Um, they, they certainly don't want to face them on a battlefield. So, uh, although I thought it was a, bizarre question 25 years ago i think it's a very valid one now yeah unfortunately and yeah you can see that it's possible that it's just a roll into something global yeah thank you so much and i'll pass you back to grace uh, uh dr nas or meryl thank you um it's just interesting the last comment that you and Jane had because I guess that could continue to the defunding this, defunding the defunding the police. So that ties to their other agenda. So before you go, let let's just there's this one that I want to share from the viewer, and she says a virus need a host. Okay, and that's really good so that people could start thinking about building themselves and the human create their own virus fever virus or to get out of the mucus i i i am in agreement with that and i believe that's what dr merit um dr merit merrill is saying that we gotta really take care of ourselves and dr merit who's been with us i'm sure she'll say that too that you know that take care of ourselves because you just never know so how can people help you or support you or get in touch with you? So um, I have a Substack, merylnass.substack.com. Uh, I um, have a TV show on Children's Health Defense TV twice a month. And every Friday I'm on a, a panel. So that's Good Morning CHD on Thursdays. And I'm on a panel um, on Fridays at let me see what's that called, um, Friday Roundtable on Children's Health Defense TV. I sometimes write for The Defender. Um, and yes, my license was uh, taken, so I have a very expensive defense of my medical license, and Children's Health Defense is um, uh, helping with that. And any donations to Children's Health Defense um, just please state that they are to help support my defense, which has cost uh, over $300,000 so far. It's, it's an extraordinary amount, um, but um, I am trying to create a, um, a playlist for other doctors. Turns out now, I've just found out, that almost every doctor that's going against the narrative 
is being investigated by their medical board and threatened with license revocation. So I am trying to create a program that will help all the doctors because the boards are using the same techniques to go after all of us. And now that I've, my lawyers have kind of laid the foundation for how to fight that, I want to get that information out to everybody. So working on a website to do that, gave a talk on it last week, and um, hope you will support that as well. Because the, the only way you can fool everybody about a pandemic is if you get the doctors to walk in lockstep with you and they don't challenge this narrative. And the way doctors have been controlled is to threaten their livelihood, their license. Doctors can't stand to lose their license. It's worse than a divorce. Many doctors commit suicide when it happens. Um, and basically, this, but this isn't really about the doctors. It's about the patients because if no doctors, California passed a law a couple of months ago that for a doctor to tell you the truth about COVID in their office and you want their personal opinion, it's a crime. They've made it a crime for a doctor to give you anything but the consensus narrative in California, signed by the governor, passed by both houses. And this is what um, the governments around the world are trying to do. They want you to get the one medical care they have decided you can get, and they're gonna restrict you from going to alternative doctor. This, the medical boards are going after naturopaths and osteopaths as well in the United States. Um, so if you want the ability to get the kind of medical care you choose, this is a very important um, issue and we have to empower the doctors so that they can speak the truth to the public and to their patients. Thank you so much. And yes, there are so many um, links out. I will put more and more links that uh, information of the, her sub stack. Actually, can, can I interrupt? This website, I have not been updating for uh, the last six months. So that's not a good website to go to. Um, anth anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com does get updated or merylnass.substack.com. That also, that has, the website and the Substack have different information. So uh, please go to them both. So we'll make sure, so it's merylnass.substack.com. And it's really easy when you just go to Substack and you can find your favorite uh, advocates then you're, it's really very important. I, I've been subscribing because it's, it helps me understand more and then I could also support in whatever way. And uh, mm, let's see. Yeah, so and glad to meet you and glad to have you here. We, we welcome you again and again in the near future. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us in whatever way we can. Yeah. And we to our audience so <laughs> for having me and it's been a pleasure to meet the four of you so let us hopefully stay in touch yes and again to our followers and audience please share 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 and i really appreciate those who are even sharing it in facebook in BitChute, in rumble from roy's website i mean podcast from jane from hartmut from me and 
Meryl, take care of yourself and I'm glad you're better. And please reach out whatever we, however we can help. Take care. Thank you. Bye.